Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe, how are you? Hey Jules, how are you? Surviving. (laughs) Well, you look very cute, I have to say. You look like you're glowing. Oh, thank you. I don't feel an inner glow, but I'll take an outer glow. Yeah, yeah, of course. Sometimes it's just, it doesn't correlate with the emotions, but I'll still always accept. Like, oh my God, your skin looks amazing. Like, thank you. I'm in a very bad place mentally. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly how I feel. Definitely not in a good place mentally. But yeah, if I can hide that under some good skin, it's all good. (laughs) Is this a COVID taking its toll moment? Yeah, I think COVID has completely taken its toll. I'm Mm -hmm. absolutely over it. You know, and I think most of us or a lot of people listening will be in a similar situation where you haven't really had an actual break. Yeah. Because even when I've taken days off at home, I haven't really turned off. It's not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. And when people talk about like staycations and things like that, like with the greatest will in the world, no one is just in their house having a vacation. Are you telling me what you didn't think at any point during your quote-unquote staycation? Oh, I need to do a food shop. I need to put on a wash. I should redo the vacuuming. No yeah. one's getting downtime in the way that they would usually be getting downtime. Yeah, but I think some people are very disciplined about their downtime. So mm-hmm. when they're at home, they found ways that they can like really relax. Right. Especially people who just enjoy being by themselves. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I feel like a lot of people I know thought that they were introverts, probably in the same way that some people thought they were extroverts, but it's feeling like the opposite is true. Mm. How are you finding Uh, that as someone who is quite gregarious, quite a social person? You know, the lockdown is so interesting because I've realised there are a lot of people or there are some people, you know, that I used to spend time with. And now I think, wow, I actually don't like you. (laughs) I don't like you. Maybe you don't like me either. So it's cool. (laughs) But I'm like, whoa, I don't like you. Do you think then it'll be easier if things ever go back to normal to let that die a death? I don't even. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. I don't even know. I think it's when you are somebody that is extroverted, Mm -hmm. you're always like with people, you're going from crowd to crowd. Yes, I do have friends that I consider closer, but like, you're always distracted by people. Mm-hmm. You're always on. And then, yeah, you're always on. You're always distracted by people. You always kind of have something to do. And then you take a step back from that. And like, yes, you know, I still interact with, you know, my friends, my colleagues, but it's quite lonely. Mm-hmm. It's a bit, it's a bit strange. It's a bit like authentic connection. If that doesn't sound too Dr. Phil, like, there are people that you don't notice that you have very superficial interactions with. And I have to say that those are superficial interactions are one of the things that I'm missing. Just a very quick back and forth with someone in Pret, like chatting with someone in the work kitchens. It doesn't mean anything. We're not looking to hang out outside of this very brief interaction. But if it's the case that you are someone who's always kind of flitting from group to group, social situation to social situation, you're a bit like, oh, I'm looking for something substantial. I really miss having a proper chat with a friend or going out for dinner and hanging out and those kind of things. I did have like one of those superficial moments today because I went to the dentist Mm -hmm. and it was very cool because it was the first time where they took my temperature. Right. When I went to the dentist, I was like, okay, this is cool. And then some old guy that I didn't know, like sat next to me. And then he's like, oh, are you from Africa? Or the Caribbean. I was like, oh, here we go. It's like, it's like oh, I'm from Africa. He says, where are you from? I said, I'm from Uganda. And when people are older, and like he's older and like South Asian. Right. So I thought the next thing he was going to say is, I'm Ugandan, because you have a lot of Indians living who used to right. live in Uganda. And then he's like, oh, I'm from Ghana. I was like, okay, here we go, here we go. And then he said, oh, how's the HIV in, in Uganda these days? Wow. Wow. And that is the thing. With these old people, they either talk about HIV, Idi Amin, or they're Ugandan, basically. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. I think I'm going to go back home now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually full. 
Thank you. I was like, oh, I think you're talking about the 80s. It's all under control now. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really into it. Like, oh, wow, someone is speaking to me. And then I was like, no, it's fine. Abort, abort. Yeah, Yeah. I was like, it's it's okay. It's all good. But then I did actually go for a drink with a friend on Saturday to like an outdoor terrace. And it was so nice. It's so nice to like see your friends. Mm -hmm. But then you have this anxiety of just being... Of being... I don't don't know. A lot of people are out and about, right? But for me, it's very different when you just go to the park and you bring your things and you hang out with your friends. Mm -hmm. When you actually go somewhere and then they bring you a glass of water, it's not what it used to be. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And that's the thing, like... I actually saw my auntie for the first time in months and months. And my my auntie only lives like 10, 15 minutes up the road from me in London. But my uncle, her husband, is 70. He's asthmatic. So we haven't seen each other at all. And that's been really hard for me because, you know, we're close and we see each other quite frequently. We are one another's kind of only real family in London. And I saw her on Friday evening for a glass of wine and... I was vibrating. I was so happy. I was so excited afterwards. I was like, I didn't know how much I needed to see someone. I didn't know how much I needed to just sit across a table. Because like, I think that we're lucky. You and I obviously speak on at least a weekly basis. But it's not the same as being in a physical space with someone. I need that. I really, really miss it. It is not the same. Like when you're opposite, you know, someone and then they're bringing the drinks out. So yes. much joy. So much much joy. Will we get some uh, olives? Should we get some chips? It's just like the the whole experience of it is. There was so much joy. So there was obviously a bit more anxiety, like Mm -hmm. being out. But yeah, Shweta is who I was hanging out with on Saturday and it was so good. And then I also went for a walk with another friend of mine. So I'm like, you know what? Let's optimize this time because there Mm -hmm. will be a second wave. And I think the winter will be very hard and that's it obviously everyone's got their own limits I think one of the things that this whole thing has taught me is the judgmental aspect because there are rules that I am happy to bend or break I know I haven't been good 100% of the time I do think I've been good about 90% of the time but what I realize is that my 10% might look different to somebody else's so As you said, we've got to maximise and optimise this time when we can see people because you can't go a full year without having had a drink with a mate or having had a bite to eat with a mate. It's just not feasible. Yeah, it's very difficult for us because that was like a lifestyle. That was like... for sure. That was the life. Mm -hmm. So it's so hard now to not have that at all. So I've definitely started to feel a little bit, you know, okay can't wait for this to be over. I did want to have a chat with you about Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. Wow. So because you are studying, so Phoebe's doing her MBA and I know that you do a lot of stuff around like leadership and like management. And so for those of you who aren't following Ellen, if you don't know who Ellen is, yeah. I don't know what to say. Right. Yeah, she's so famous. She goes by her first name. But it recently a lot of accusations have been coming out that, you know, her show is really toxic work culture. She's a very, very mean person. And the issue is similar to the issue that Jada Pinkett Smith had. Mm -hmm. When you build a brand around being nice, yeah, but you are horrible that's when these types of accusations, that's when people get very, very shocked when they hear that you're horrible. I agree. And yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the the MBA and the leadership module in particular, because the albatross around my neck is that I will tend to think that I'm less intelligent or I'm less adept than other people. So I feel- Why do you think that? I'm I'm not sure why it is. I'm sure like I'm sure it requires just further work on myself on my part. But say in the context of the MBA, I do often think- oh, everybody else really knows what they're talking about, right? And there's a certain amount of self-assessment that is ongoing at the moment. And so you talk about things like directive versus non-directive approach. And non-directive approach is the approach that's basically optimal. That's where you want to be heading. And it's things like, do you think that you are a non-directive or directive leader? Does popularity matter to you? And the thing that blows me away constantly is despite the fact that I don't think I'm necessarily on the level as other people on the MBA. I can look at those questions and say, yeah, popularity does matter to me because it would be 
silly to pretend otherwise. Whether or not my colleagues or my counterparts like me isn't the be all and end all, but it does matter. And I think that you've got then a situation where people within this MBA structure will be saying what they think the right answer is, as opposed to being honest. And the fact is, if you're already employing all of the best management and leadership techniques and popularity doesn't matter to you, and I'm always non-directive in my encouragement of junior members of staff, when why are you doing an MBA? It sounds like you know it all already. What's brought you here? And I think it's similar with Ellen because we've got an idea of what, oh, she's so funny and gregarious and like she scares people when they come on the show. People don't want to be disrupted and told, oh, actually, behind the scenes, she wasn't a very good person. Behind the scenes, they actually weren't a very good leader. Yeah. But I think the challenge with Ellen specifically is that, A, we're hearing like racism on the show. Yeah. And you know how it is with America where, so for example, one employee was going to resign to go to another show. And then Ellen like begged the employee to stay and was like, no, we need you. And apparently this employee was pregnant at the time or had just had a child at the time. Mm. And then she said, okay, fine, I'll stay and rejected the other offer. And then when she decided to stay, Ellen fired her a week later or within a very short time frame afterwards. So there's a level of vindictiveness. Vindictiveness. So then this person was unemployed. And you know, in America, your employment is linked to your health and all these other benefits. And then they really struggled to find a new opportunity afterwards. So, I mean, all of this is well documented online, but it was an incredibly toxic work culture, like another employee having to take time off to check themselves into an institute for their mental health. Wow. So they took time for a month. Yeah. And then when they came back, basically lost their job oh wow so So it's this type of thing yes so it's the sort of kind of eccentric stuff you hear where it's like okay guys when Ellen's in the room like don't speak to her oh my god like full-on Mariah Carey level yeah yeah so exactly so that of course you know you're used to that level of like eccentricity all right fine apparently she has a very sensitive nose so if she would be around someone and they don't smell good she would say you need to go home and shower Wow. Yeah. So it's that kind of like, I mean, that is anxiety inducing anyway. Yeah, for sure. Right. But then also things like, you know, one producer told a black female employee, like, oh, sorry, I only know the names of the white people that work here. Jeez. (laughs) And this is the thing. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because it seems like right now, Ellen is very much so trying to say, oh, well, I didn't know that this was going on. Now, do you exactly do you believe that? No, I don't believe that because Ellen is so powerful, so influential, so successful. Mm -hmm. In order for you to be that successful, you know what's going on. And also, I think that if you are really this nice, sunny, super friendly personality that you are purporting to be, your senior executives or your executive producers don't feel comfortable discriminating and harassing Mm. lower members of staff because you haven't cultivated that environment exactly and that's the issue because now that it's coming out she's basically saying oh on the first day I told everybody that I wanted to have this amazing work culture Mm -hmm. where we would always be kind to each other and that's Ellen saying we need to be kind yeah right Yeah, yeah yeah But if those were really your values, I cannot imagine that systemically across the board, there would be discrimination, harassment, bullying, a culture of fear. And that's it. And everyone trying to be a bit like, oh, please, God, this will give me a foot in the door. This will like boost me up the ladder. So you're doing your time with the horrible boss in the hope (laughs) of these dividends for you. And, And it's tough as well, because I think that, At the same time, we can also acknowledge that Ellen did a lot for the LGBTQ community when she came out in a very public way. She got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Obama. And so was she always this person or did she become this person as she started to get more and more powerful and more and more successful? I mean, that's neither here nor there, you know, because we don't, we can't, yeah. Of course, in terms of her personal journey, you know, we can't really comment. We don't know what's going on. But clearly, in terms of be kind and all that fun stuff, mm-hmm. that is a brand and that is a job for her. Yes, absolutely. And box issue can't, yeah, box ticking. And the issue is now that we, the public, believe that Ellen is so nice. Like mm-hmm. I would think that I would see Ellen. I'd be waving, "Hi, Ellen." Yeah, and yeah, yeah. 
listen, the company that I'm working for now, when I got my offer, I had a dream that Ellen was there on my first day (laughs) being like, go Jules. (laughs) I had that dream that Ellen was there being like, welcome to the office. Yes. So in in my psyche that Ellen is this really nice, awesome person. And and that is true. And that I think is the point that I was trying to make when I talk about, you know, her doing so much for the LGBTQ community and her getting that presidential medal of freedom that it's so ingrained in us there's a lot of unlearning to do and there's I mean a lot of unlearning obviously she is a celebrity and she's on a pedestal but it's not actually harmful to me to say okay well it turns out she wasn't a very nice person whereas for a lot of people who have absorbed that oh she's always laughing and joking and then you know maybe a, a clown will jump out and scare someone she's got such close relationships within Hollywood and she's so jokey and close with all of those people, will people believe even that she is not a good person? Exactly. So I think that's what it was before, where you can't really say a bad word Mm -hmm. against Ellen. But now you do have celebrities that are like, listen, she's horrible. Yes. Oh, Dakota Johnson. She's from the the Fifty Shades of Grey films. But actually, she did a really good film. Just as a quick aside, she did a great film um, with Shia LaBeouf called Peanut Butter Falcon, which I strongly recommend watching. But she really called Ellen out on the sofa, I think. I remember Mm. it went viral a while ago that Ellen was like, you didn't invite me to your party. And she was like, no, Ellen. That isn't what happened. <laughs> so it feel, I mean, for me, that was so such a viscerally awkward clip to watch. You have this situation now on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, where the lady that was married to Charlie Sheen, Denise oh, Richards. Denise Richards, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they'll be sitting at dinner and then Teddy will say, oh, you said that I will always be in my dad's shadow or something mean, right? And then Denise is like, I never said that. What are you talking about? Really? And it's like, that's Ellen. Like when they do shady stuff and then they're like, what do you mean? (laughs) So when I saw that thing with Dakota Johnson and like Ellen is like, no, that that didn't happen. And you could see she's so used to just getting her way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not going to be held accountable on her own show. Are you mad? Are you mad? And that's the thing. There was something, because I worship at the altar of celebrity, and I know that I do, but I do think power hierarchies and power structures like that are so interesting. And someone had said... when I thought you do that, I said, Jules, you need to master that. Yeah, for sure. But then someone was saying that part of it is that she comes from a legacy of Hollywood kind of royalty. And when you know that your star power, you yourself might not be with a million Oscar nominations or a million films under your belt, but your mum is Melanie Griffith and your dad is Don Johnson, you know that your connections within Hollywood are maybe not better than Ellen's, but it can at least rival them. You're not some like up and coming star who's a bit like, oh, I hope Ellen's nice to me on the show. You've got enough power in your back pocket to say that's not what happened. Exactly. And and that's the challenge you have in media is that a lot of people that work in media are looking for a big break, Mm -hmm. are not coming from a legacy background or a celebrity background. And that's why hearing about the way people are treated on her show I just find it like completely vile because it's that power dynamic you know if Ellen is mean to a celebrity I'm not really fussed but the fact that people that work for you are being treated this way you've got to take responsibility for that yeah for sure and yeah and when she came out and she was just saying oh I just found out that people that work for me and with me are horrible, basically, is what she said. She said they're not doing their job, right? I just thought, you know what, this is not going to end. Mm-hmm. Like, the rain is not going to stop, Ellen, if yeah. you don't do something authentic and genuine here. And also, we are moving to a more transparent work environment in general. That's how these things operate. It's Glassdoor, but it's also Twitter and social media. And you even had it recently on TikTok where a hostess from a restaurant in New York was rating celebrities who had come in. And she was mm. saying about, shoot, why can't I think of her name? Justin Bieber's wife. Haley. Haley Baldwin, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Was saying, you know, really rude 
dismissive, two out of 10. And same with Kylie Jenner, very rude, Beyonce, lovely, all of this kind of stuff. And those things have an impact. Mm -hmm. Celebrity culture is just so fascinating to me because it is just normal interactions, but magnified by a million so yeah and I, I think the expectations of people are changing mm -hmm. because before people would just be happy to be in the same room with you even if you were mean yes but now people are not having that like I definitely think that the shift in culture now where people want you to walk it like you talk it if you're saying your brand is authenticity Jada mm -hmm. come to the red table if your brand is be kind Show some respect. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm interested to see kind of what happens with Ellen. It's interesting as well, like just as a maybe final thought note on this, but a couple of years ago when she faced a lot of criticism for buddying up with George W. Bush and she was basically saying, oh, you know, he's a nice guy. We had a good time because she faced a lot of criticism for it. And she was saying, you know, you've got to put politics to one side and reach across the aisle, basically, trying to pretend that it was some grand political statement. And then so many people pointed out, had George W. Bush stayed in power, you and your wife would not be married, firstly. Yeah. But also, I guess when you reach a certain level, it's not about political ideologies or who you are as people. It's about how much money you make. And that is the thing that unites people within the group, as opposed to being like, oh, I actually just really vibe with them. People were saying on the Andrew Schultz podcast, they were saying that like Ellen is so mean because her wife, Portia, is basically not actually a lesbian. No, stop. And they were saying that's why Ellen is so mean because she's like really unhappy because her wife is not actually a lesbian. She's basically just gay for pay and like loves the life. <laughs> that's a sin. No, but I'm sure that happened. I mean, that happens I, all the time. Portia was quite a famous actress. Like she was in Arrested Development. And yeah, but Ellen is another level. And yeah. that's why she's so disconnected from reality. Mm. That's why when it came to the quarantine, she was saying, I feel like I'm in prison. And then people went nuts and were like, mate, your estate is not a prison. Yeah. So Ellen is so famous. Like, yeah, Portia was not living the life that Ellen has given her. I wonder if a part of that, though, you know, when we're saying, oh, you really miss seeing someone bringing out your drinks, bringing out your little bowl of nuts or something like that. <laughs> it must be strange if you are getting fawned over. And how often does Ellen record? Is it daily? It must be at least a couple of times a week. And everyone's screaming for you. And they're like, Ellen, Ellen, and asking for your autograph. And then it's just you and your wife at home. It must just feel so silent. <laughs> No one's asked me for an autograph in months. Yeah, you could just be like, Alexa, play the applause. Yeah. Like, I'm sure she's got like video like recordings oh. and she's walking through the room and like everybody's like, Ellen, Ellen. Yeah, exactly. I would definitely have that. I would absolutely, <laughs> absolutely have that. But yeah, no, I just found when they said that on the Andrew Schultz podcast, I just found that hilarious. But yes, guys. So moving on, we do have a special guest this week. Yes, super excited that we've got Vittoria Trujulio on with us this evening, criminal barrister. Welcome, Vittoria. Thanks for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. I anticipate that this is not going to be a fun segment. Yeah, it's the thing for like... Topically, it's going to be quite heavy, but yeah. just, you know, kind of environmentally, I'm glad that we're all here together. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're super excited to have you on the show. And one of the reasons why we thought it'd be great to have you on, just with everything that's happening around Black Lives Matter, everything happening with COVID, I just think there's more of a spotlight on the police but we always look at these things. Well, typically, if you're on Instagram, a lot of the messaging is from a US context. So we thought it'd be exciting to have a conversation with you and try to understand a bit more about the police and criminal justice issues from a UK perspective. 
Yeah, well, it, it's great to be here. You're right. It's not a happy topic of conversation when when I'm talking shop, which is what I'll be doing here. I think it's important to remember my shop is horrible. My shop mm. is where, where things go significantly wrong. I also have to do a bit of a disclaimer just to say views I express are personal, do not reflect the views of my chambers, etc. So now I've done that and we can get into these very important issues that you've raised here. And I, I think you're right. There's global issues when it comes to the West and our attitudes to criminal justice. And there's parallels between the UK and the US in terms of the problems that we have. But I think they manifest themselves quite differently in this country to how they do to the US. When we talk about the US as this kind of superimposing presence, that people will be very quick to say, well, it's not like that in the UK and fail to acknowledge that the UK has its own race-specific set of problems when it comes to racism. And so, yeah, I, I personally am very interested to learn more about that. But I wonder if before we do a kind of a deeper dive into that, if you could tell us a little bit more about your journey and how you came to get there. And was it something that was always of interest to you or fell into your lap almost? What did that journey look like? I've had... A actually very easy time of getting at the bar because I have been able to essentially leverage my own privilege insofar as the journey to the bar is concerned. So I, I went to university, wanted to study law, thought it was really interesting, had a particular interest in criminal justice and wanted to do something where I felt I could contribute to society in a way that was positive and be a part of a system that I think is so critical, but also undervalued by a lot of people in their lives. And I feel really privileged that I've been able to do that. But when I say I've had an easy time, I've massively used my privileges because I've been able to do things like do the work experience that you have to do. And a lot of it, at least in my day, when it came to access to the bar, was working for free and making connections and getting that type of experience. And the bar is now trying very hard to remedy these gaps and give more opportunities to people that don't have the same type of privilege that I've had. So that's essentially been my journey to the bar. Went to university, decided what I wanted to specialize in, decided what kind of chambers I wanted to be in and what kind of practitioner I myself wanted to be and what was important to me. And then did a lot of work experience, studied very hard. But again, I've had a pretty easy time of it because I was able to just focus on that. The only obstacles, if you want to call them, are the usual obstacles that are accessing a highly competitive profession with a very limited number of places for a large number of applicants. But I have been able to pursue the things that then make up your CV and that are quite often things that you do at university that basically require you to be able to, lots of people do work at university and do do all the same things, but I, I didn't have to worry about things like that. I was very lucky insofar as my family support was concerned. And that gave me a much easier time from that perspective. I'm also white, which also gave me an easier time in many ways. And in terms of increasing diversity, I think we're doing really well. But what I mean is that I haven't had the challenges that some of my black friends have had in terms of accessing the criminal bar, including attitudes, including interviews. I've not had any of that. I've had I've had a pretty easy ride when it comes to these issues. To bring it back, because I know I took us on a tangent there, but to bring it back then to how the UK measures up, and I think that there can be this kind of self-congratulatory attitude sometimes, which I think predominantly hinges on the fact that we do not have access to guns in the way that we do with the US, because I think you'd be seeing a very different kind of manifestation of racism if we did. But what do the statistics of that look like in a very real sense? When we all read, you know, the bylines of The Guardian or The Independent, depending on what side of the aisle you're falling on, and we're either congratulating ourselves or reprimanding ourselves, from a data-driven aspect or perspective, what do we need to do more of? What do we need to rectify? Well, the self-congratulatory aspect is completely misconceived in terms of this country. The observation that you make, I think, about having access to guns are completely spot on. But there is, I think, just as big a problem in this country as there is in the US. It just manifests itself in different ways. The data is incredibly sobering and there's quite a lot of data. And the thing is, they always say the same things, always identify the same problems and always make the same recommendations. It's the fact that, and I, I hate this term, it sucks, but that is what the data uses. People from BMAE backgrounds are vastly overrepresented in the criminal justice system 
for example, at every level. Um, the, the latest really good bit of data is uh, something that's called the LAMI review in 2017. And it builds on other studies that have been conducted. And it makes for depressing and sobering reading. Because from every stage, you see from charging decisions to what kind of things you get charged with, to the way that you are policed and the type of interactions that the police have with you, there is a significant and really lamentable overrepresentation of people from BME backgrounds and people that are care leavers. What is a care lever? Oh, if you've been in foster care, for example. Oh, okay. So, yeah. If you've been in foster care, I think the statistic hovers at about 25% of the adult prison population in the UK is made up of care leavers. So, wow. It's really quite a depressing figure. And I could chuck out so many statistics at you at so many levels. If you're black, you're about 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched in this country than if you're white. If you are black, you are 240% time more likely to go to prison for drugs offences than if you're white. Wow. If you're from a BMA background, you're more likely to plead guilty to certain offences where white people or as Professor Leslie Thomas, uh, Queen's Council has, I don't know if you guys have come across it, the term WAME. What's WAME? Professor Leslie Thomas, Queen's Council, is, he's a really fabulous barrister. In, he's involved in uh, Grenfell now. And he is quite famous for his cases involving actions against the police. And on a recent panel and then on Twitter, he pointed out that, you know, if, if we're going to lump people together and just just call them BAME and expect people to be okay with that, there's no reason that white people perhaps shouldn't be referred to collectively as way more white and majority ethnic. Statistically, when we're trying to analyse these problems, so if we say that if you're black, you're 200% plus times more likely to be stopped by the police in this country. How is that segmented out? It's not always segmented out when it comes to the research. I mean, again, the LAMI review does highlight the grouping limitations of this type of research and this type of terminology. But the statistics that are more commonly used and more commonly trotted out are basically framed within the BAME wording. There is analysis that is more detailed in some quarters, but it's not as broken down to individual experience as we might want it to be. And I I think that's quite significant because to lump a group of people together for ease of reference provides, I think, provokes a real limitation in terms of understanding individual experiences and the solutions that are required in tackling different types of prejudice because prejudice all what comes under one horrible umbrella we see particularly in the criminal justice system but it can manifest itself in ways that is person specific and so the way that someone might be prejudiced towards a young black boy that is alleged to be involved in drug dealing is not the same manifestation where you might see someone that is being wildly anti-Semitic or someone that comes from a Muslim background or South Asian background. And it's not to say that one type of prejudice is better than the other, obviously. It's just that they're rooted in different basis. And in order to tackle them, I think you do need to understand why it is that people act like that and exactly how you're going to deal with it. And that kind of lumping doesn't work terribly well, I think. Yeah, I think for me, it's so important for us to, you know, we might not be able to get down to the individual experience level, but it's very, very important for us to kind of revise the way we do categorise people ethnically in this country. So if we look at all the stuff that's happening with COVID-19, Black people are disproportionately infected and dying of COVID-19, mm-hmm. right? So that analysis, like it's being segmented out. And if you look at things like childbirth, black women in the UK are five times more likely to die of childbirth and have issues around childbirth in this country. I mean, obviously that's all horrific. And I think we would benefit from just having a bit more transparency on how these things play out legally. What comes out quite often is the lack of trust that people from BMA communities particularly have in the criminal justice system as a whole. It's a place that is an unhappy place for a lot of people that are involved there. And when you're advising, you have to provide legal advice in a certain format. 
you advise on the evidence and you advise on chance and success. And the idea is you let your clients, if you're defending, make their own decision about what kind of plea they want to enter. There is a particular advantage to entering guilty pleas if you think you're going to get convicted, which is that you get something that's called credit for guilty plea. You get a discount off your sentence. And the earlier you do it, the bigger the discount. So a lot of this lack of trust translates itself, it seems, in people thinking that they're going to get convicted anyway because the system is not for them and that they're going to bank the discount when they can. Of course, people that plead guilty might be guilty. They are guilty quite often. The evidence is quite strong and it's a good idea to bank the discount. But I don't think that we can forget about the overrepresentation when it comes to charging decisions there and how many people that have been charged with something might not have been charged with it if they'd been white. And how does that feed into this overrepresentation that we see within the criminal justice system? Yeah, it's interesting in that regard, because I know I've read about the fact is that black neighbourhoods are over police. So there's an inevitability that there are going to be higher rates of crime and that white crimes not only or white neighbourhoods not only tend to be under policed, but also crimes tend to be underreported in the same way. Right. So it's a very selective bank of data to be choosing from. And it's like when we say, oh, you know, black on black crime. And the disconnect when saying that and thinking it's really the kind of ace up your sleeve and what that actually speaks to in terms of a, a more national issue. I mean, it's, it's very telling, I think, when people trot things like that out. And I just wonder, what does the minutiae of that look like? Not even the minutiae of it, because you've spoken to that. But I mean, how does education start? So when we talk about building trust, do we just scrap the whole thing and start again from a policing, from a criminal justice perspective? Or what do you think are the solutions? I think the solution has got to be is investment, investment, diversion, diversion. And it has to start a lot sooner and it has to be community engagement that is targeted. There are some very peculiar problems to criminal justice system and to policing in the UK. One of the issues insofar as criminalisation or a lack of diversion is, is concerned is that there was a significant cull of youth centres about 10 years ago now. No, no, this is a very important point. Moment of silence for this point. I think a big part of the issue that we have, like obviously there are so many issues and it's a complex topic, but the way that public services have been completely decimated, Mm -hmm. especially for young people, when you think about kids club, and all the other different youth facilities that used to be available. Even when I was young, we had connections and you would go to connections to like update your CV and all this type of stuff. All of those resources completely gone from the community. And the people that used to run these different initiatives and organizations, they were a part of the community. They were other adults that you knew, that spoke your language, that you could go to and that would support you. And that has all vanished. I can't imagine being like a 14-year-old now, this summer. What do you have to do? Mm, It's true. Exactly. And you're right. I think there's also, and being slightly niche here, but I think there is a really significant misconception about how particularly gang-related violence starts in this country. And I think it's not communicated well enough that it's grooming. The way that gangs work towards children particularly is this perpetual cycle of grooming and centers that are community-led were a really critical way of stopping this type of grooming because it starts off at least with lots of people that I've interacted with uh, where you get caught up in things and these little boys will be seven or be eight and people will start to be nice to you and then you start to develop a sense of and, and once you take the diversion away from that it's grooming like any other way and a, a lot of these kids are groomed into behaviors that then become really problematic for them and then they can't get out of it because it's very easy for anyone to say well stop hanging out with these people and stop hanging out with the knives and stop selling drugs or whatever but unless there is a pathway that is properly funded both not to get into this situation but to come out of it safely it's just this perpetual cycle the way I see it of policing 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 prison 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 and breaking the cycle is the exception rather than the rule and it should really be the other way around in terms of prison and if we're talking about young people like juvenile Mm -hmm. detention what is our strategy is it rehabilitation (laughs) 
or is it like punishment? Let me tell you a little bit about how youth courts work in this country. So, and it's in statute and insofar as the stated aims of youth justice are concerned, when you're dealing with children, the idea is the primary focus has got to be preventing them from doing it again. If they've done something that's not great, bit naughty. Obviously, it will depend on the severity of the offence, but that is a stated aim of youth justice and also the welfare of the child in question. So that's what's on paper. That's all great. There's two main venues where young people and children interact in the criminal justice system when it comes to actually being in court. And one of them is the youth court, which is meant to be a specialist court, no jury. And the other one is the Crown Court, which is if it's too serious or if it's too complicated, the idea is it goes up to a Crown Court and you have a trial with a jury. A lot of the bog standard cases, if you want to call them, so the cases that aren't super, super, super serious, will typically stay in the youth court because the idea behind it is that it is a less intimidating venue and that it's supposedly less formal, it's less frightening for children and young people, and so making a scary experience of being into court a little bit less intimidating, right? So that's that's the idea. In practice, what's the youth court like? Well, there's some specialist district judges that do a really great job. That's, that's fantastic. But how much do you guys know, because this will inform my next bit of rant, about uh, magistrates and how magistrates work in this world? Very little. We don't know anything. anything. (laughs) Magistrates are basically unpaid volunteers that come and they don't need to have any legal training. They get about three days. They've got a legal advisor there and they sit there and they are judge and jury in cases. So they make decisions on law. They make decisions on fact. There is a significant lack of diversity within the magistracy. Let's put it that way, because most of them are over 50. Most of them are white. In fact, I think it's 11.5% of magistrates come from BME background. And in terms of representation, that doesn't sound too bad, at least on the surface, because I think about 14% of the UK population is BME. But then when you factor in the massive overrepresentation of BME people within the court system, you see that actually 11.5% is not nearly enough. So anyway, and so the idea, and lots of them are very well intentioned, the idea of it is that you go in and you serve your community, you volunteer for your community as someone that's not a professional in law, but that's the sentiment of it, it's also quite cheap. Uh, it's a lot cheaper than running with professional judges because they get some expenses paid back, but you don't have to pay them in the way that you do to professionals. And the reason I raise this is because quite often in the youth court, you will have magistrates that are specialist youth magistrates. So they get a bit of extra training to go to the youth court. But where at least in my experience in practicing in the youth court, they forget quite often that they're dealing with children. They get pretty hardened. And this is in both the adult and and youth courts that they sit on there. But they do come to it with a sense of civic duty. But in terms of empathy, it's often pretty lacking. And when you're dealing with children, this is especially significant because they forget that they're kids. At least my experience practicing in the youth court. Very often I'll have a 14, 15-year-old boy and maybe they're tall, maybe whatever, it's, it's a child, they're, they're a teenager. And my opinion on how those courts work is not great because they seem quite often to lose focus of the idea that rehabilitation and prevention of crime has got to be the aim. And at least in, in my own experience, they're very focused on the punitive aspect of it. That point that you make about forgetting that they're children is such an important point because these kids don't look like their kids. That's why community-based policing and, you know, having a magistrate and a judiciary that is a bit more representative is really, really crucial because that's where you lose the human aspect, you know, and they look at like a 14-year-old black boy like he's a 30-year-old man. Mm-hmm. And that's when you think, oh, I'm not going to focus on rehabilitation because this person doesn't have a chance. You know, I would like to believe that, especially kids, I would like to believe that our goal should be to rehabilitate them and put them on a path where they can be set up for success. I don't know if I'm like in a bloody la-la land. Well, I'm appalled at this idea that actually being a magistrate is something that I could pretty much just wake up and decide I want to do. And I don't think that that is something that's very well known. I don't think that that is something that's very well documented. But they know in that magistrate's crew, yeah, they, they all know. They all know. I can go, no, but I should be a magistrate. You should be a magistrate. Yeah. Why not? 
I mean, why not exactly? But this is the thing. Like, as soon as I, if I heard that someone was a magistrate, I'd be like, very smart. I had no idea. You know, to, the idea that that is, I mean, and please, Victoria, correct me if I'm wrong here. But in terms of a tangible difference that you, one, could make to the criminal justice system in the UK, training as a magistrate is one of them. Well, oversimplification. I've, I've, I've overreached. <laughs> that was an oversimplification. No, I've, I've no. overreached. I can I can tell I have. Not, not at all. Diversity within the magistrates and increasing diversity within the magistracy is an absolutely crucial thing to do. There's been significant reference to this tap on the shoulder culture in a lot of literature about how magistrates are recruited and they basically recruit their mates. And again, some magistrates are really good. And it's not like there's some great conspiracy where they sit around and go, ha ha, I can't wait to throw some little boys in prison. It's not that. It's more a fossilization of ingrained prejudices and attitude that you combine with a court that is underfunded as the magistrate's court is. The road to hell is paved with good intention. So they come in with a sense of civic duty that ends up being misapplied in many ways. And it's problematic at various levels. I think it's especially problematic when it comes to children. A lot of what I see in the youth court is things like robbery. Robbery is a really serious offence. If you're an adult, you're going to the Crown Court for robbery. It's a big one. And you'll find a lot of youth courts are kind of littered with robberies here, there and and everywhere. While it's fair enough where offences have been committed and it's appropriate to involve the criminal justice system, and particularly YOT, actually, the youth offending teams and the youth courts are underfunded, but are overall really good and do try and replicate that kind of community engagement that we've talked about. It still comes a bit late in the process because you're you're already in court. But if you start criminalising children too often and too early and in a system that feels alien and, and frightening to them, and quite often when it comes to them being sentenced, for example, seems to be quite punitive in practice, if not stated to be so. And you end up with these cycles of incarceration because now you've got conviction. Now you can't do the same things that you were going to do. You know, if you get sent to a detention centre, you might make other mates, you might come out, you might think that you've got no other way out of it and off you go. And so this focus on preventing offending from young people really gets lost in its application, I think, in terms of the youth courts in particular. Not so much in the Crown Courts. Crown Court judges, by and large, dealing with young people are, again, my anecdotal experience, it's completely different. Sure, there's a punitive element to them. Often they'll be dealing with them for far more serious things if they're in the Crown Court. But the attitude is palpably different as a practitioner within those venues. And I think it does come down to the fact that Crown Court judges, they're not not perfect, they're human beings, and there's issues within diversity in the judiciary and, and an application, as we've seen from the statistics. But they do get more training, they get it more frequently, and they're professionals. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, I can imagine that does make a huge difference. What does being tough on crime in the UK mean? Everything in the UK seems to be underfunded, but the UK is not a poor country. So typically the Tories are tough on crime. And I'm interested in how that manifests. Does that just manifest in making sure everything is underfunded so people are just more vulnerable and you know, like you said, so many areas of the criminal justice system are underfunded. What does that mean? Well, if, if I can just circle back to the funding point on that, it's interesting what you raise because when you look at actual money spent, Britain has the second largest policing budget per capita in Europe. So at least in my opinion, it's not spent in the right places. So as well as needing more funds insofar as diversion, prevention, rehabilitation and courts, all the important things that form a part of the system, education, you know, at every single level, if we're looking at actual police spending, it's a system that's expensive, but that works on the front line as if it weren't at all. It's certainly palpably underfunded when you're dealing with the vast majority, at least again, in in my experience and in my my practice, with what frontline policing translates to. You'll have officers who are four or five hours over their shift. You'll have training that isn't always appropriately followed up. In terms of investigation capacity and how far you can investigate something and devote resources to it, 
again, there's just not enough of them and it's not enough money. And this, at least in my opinion, is a significant contributor to some of the unfairness that we see within the criminal justice system. Now, there's prejudices that are rooted and that's one aspect of it. But the way that they manifest themselves, for example, if you're a police officer and you're working against impossible deadlines or things that feel to you to be impossible because you've got to go here you've got to go there are you going to stop and search more people to try and identify a particular person to get onto your next job are you going to stop more bma people in a particular community because you've had a, a loose description of a black person you haven't asked about skin tone and so are you just going to think oh look there's a black person that somehow matches a description to this let me stop and search them it's not just an underfunding thing obviously by engaging in that kind of behavior there is an element of racial prejudice that is significantly ingrained there, but it's not made better by the fact that they don't have the funds and staff to do the job properly and and to devote to it. So really, it's just a vicious cycle. It's on so many levels. And I don't think being tough on crime just translates to bigger sentences, because what is the point of spending a load of money on prisons when the country would be far better served by not filling them up and making sure that resources are diverted to prevention, community engagement, and to all the things that work and actually help people. One thing that we have seen being discussed in the context of the US is taking some of that police funding and diverting that to things like social services. So you've already made a really great point about how our kind of our youth centres and our shore start centres have been defunded, and that allows the cycle to continue. If it were the case that we were to take some of that money from police funding and redirect that to social workers, can you see that model working in the UK? Or do you think that we need something different I do different see that model working in, in the UK. As a general principle, I think that a lot could be achieved very positively by funding solutions that are preventative. But I don't personally believe that this should be at the expense of funding within the policing and the post-crime or post-allegation part of the criminal justice system because underfunding at those levels creates significant difficulties and significant problems and it's all part of perpetuation of the same of the same cycle. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No. You have elevated our show. Bye. Oh mate, thank you for having <laughs> me. I'm Victoria, this has been so enjoyable. We may have to get you on again. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure that a lot of questions are going to come through, but really thank you thank so much you for so your much. time this evening. It was great to speak with you. Um, it was great to speak <laughs> with you, your cat in the background. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard us laugh halfway through, but Victoria's cat did make a guest appearance on the screen. So that also elevated the whole vibe cat, of the show. Cat's <laughs> thank you. Thank so you so much, much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. We're taking a summer holiday, so we're going to see you guys or hear, you're going to hear hear from from us in September. Yeah, for sure. Take care. Keep us posted as to topics that you'd like to hear us discuss. As Jules said, please share the podcast with a friend and we will speak to you in a month. Bye. Bye.